0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I'm your host, Ian Boswell, having not a full English breakfast this morning, but rather some sourdough English muffins. A lot of us got very into baking over the early days of lockdown. My Instagram feed was full of everyone's baking. A lot of people got into making sourdough. We've had a sourdough start for a few years now. We definitely intermittently use it because it takes a lot of time to feed it, which my wife diligently does when we are keeping the sourdough start alive. Gretchen, your first attempt at sourdough English muffins. What's the consensus?
1: They're definitely time consuming, and I think they have the, a flavor of English muffins, but they don't necessarily have those nice holes that you associate with English muffins. So. I think I'd do it a little bit differently in the future, but they have the flavor, which is nice, and they're a great vector for our eggs this morning. Yeah, I would do it again. Maybe not again in this year, but...
0: <laughs> well, we just started this year, so you got a you ways to go to until we'll be having sourdough English muffins again. Yep, we uh, cut them in half. Actually, we forked them in half, put them in the toaster, half with some avocado and eggs. I actually put on some cordyceps mushrooms on mine. There's a company here in Vermont that... Does a quartercep mushroom. So I have that on top of my egg and avocado, and the other half with some butter and homemade raspberry jam. That's breakfast, English style. I hope you're all ready for another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. In today's show, I am joined by my former racing pal and fellow retiree, Phil Guyman, to talk about how he stays so darn motivated in retirement. We talk a little bit about his recent Everesting World Record attempt. I won't give any spoiler alerts away here. You'll have to head over to his YouTube channel to find out more. We talk about the pros and cons and what he misses and what he doesn't of being a professional road cyclist on a big World Tour team. We briefly touch on doping in sport and how it affected Phil's career. We talk about the future of American racing. And with that, the birth of what it means to be a professional cyclist in this new landscape. But before we hear from Phil, I am preparing for the Tour of Sufferlandria, which takes place February 14th to the 20th. So, in preparation, I rang up my good pal over at Wahoo Sports Science, Neil Henderson, to ask him how to best prepare for seven intense days of training. Also, what recovery looks like coming off of such an intense block, and what sort of benefits I should see in the weeks following the tour. It should be known that all benefits of the Tour of Sufferlandria go to the Davis Finney Foundation. To find out more, you can head over to the SufferFest.com. But now let's head over to Neil Henderson to get a bit more insight into the Tour of Sufferlandria and how to best prepare. And following Neil into today's guest, my conversation with professional cyclist. Phil Gaiman. Well, Neil, you are no stranger to helping pro riders prepare for a grand tour. The tour of Sufferlandria is just around the corner, the annual fundraiser for the Davis Finney Foundation. Can you talk us through a little bit about how riders should best prepare for this effort? And I guess it's really a seven-day, seven-day venture. For many people, and a lot of people are kind of just getting back into, into riding, seven days in a row might be a lot for people who haven't been doing that. But also, what are the benefits of doing a seven-day block like the Tour of Sufferlandria?
1: So effectively, the the Tour of Sufferlandria being seven days is clearly an overload. You're going to be doing more riding in those seven days than typically you would in pretty much any other seven-day kind of normal training schedule or, or even like a lot of times a race, you know, there aren't many folks that get out and do a, a seven day long race. Like we have uh, kind of simulated here at the tour supplementary. So there's a preparation aspect to get you physically ready for that bit of overload. And so that work really peaks several weeks before the tour starts. It's not the week before or two weeks before where you want to do your hardest training. It's often more like three, four, five weeks out where you want to hit that biggest peak. So that's probably right about now for most folks. The physical preparation then has to be followed by some rest and recovery. So once you do that little bit of overload here, you know, several weeks out, you back off a little bit so that you start off on day one with full reserves of energy ready to go. And even more importantly, that you have your mental game ready to go. Because Everyone's gonna get tired over the course of the seven days and, and you might have a rough patch on day two or day three or days four, five and six you never know and having that mental strength and that that kind of reserve of mental energy going into it is going to be really helpful and something to think about as you come into it. So physically prepare, then rest and then really energize and get yourself ready for that seven days and just take it one day at a
0: time and what about coming out of an event like this and what's kind of the the protocol for doing you know seven days of of pretty intense training in a row you know what's the immediate kind of days afterwards what should those look like and then you know what should you expect to kind of gain from doing this pretty intense seven-day block
1: yeah so in addition to the tour prep plans that we do helping people get ready we have different ways of riding the tour so some folks are going to go the full nuclear option meaning they're going 100% all 7 days and then we have the other ways of doing it in you know a little bit more focused where you're not pushing every single stage of those 7 days as hard and then there's a, a get me through it as well another option so depending on how deep you go how hard you push those 7 days how you come out of it is also going to have a, a little bit of an impact there. So in some cases, if you go full nuclear, you know, you might need a few days completely off the bike. Two, three days would not be uncommon for others that have done it in a, in a little bit more of a, you know, managed way and they don't have a lot of fatigue coming out of it, you know, kind of feeling fresh. They could probably be riding, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right after the tour, you know, easier generally, but uh, they should be able to pick up with the training schedule pretty quick. Um, so we also do a post-door plans where again, it varies between whether you're really fatigued, a little bit fatigued, you're just feeling great. Uh, and that is often going to be, you know, uh, related to how hard you went in it. So, a little bit of variation in how you recover depending on how deep you went, but everyone is going to need some bit of a reduction as you come out of it, no matter, you know, even if you just rode it at, say, you know, a, a manageable level of reduced intensity, but seven days for most folks is going to be clearly an overload relative to their normal training schedule.
0: And how long afterwards from a seven-day block should you expect to see kind of a, a bump in your in your fitness from that? We
1: usually see those biggest bumps occurring anywhere from 10 to 20 days post-tour. So, you know, in rare cases, could somebody be within seven days, like ready to get at it. Uh, When we do our our post-tour, like planning for folks that are going to do something like full frontal to retest where their fitness levels are, we recommend about 10 days to almost two weeks to get the best results out of that. Or even doing something like a knighthood attempt. So, if, if the tour, if you went nuclear, you did a really big seven days, give yourself that, you know, 10 days, two weeks before you attempt something really big, whether it is a, a race or a knighthood or a full frontal.
0: And will you be taking part in this year's tour of Suffolandria?
1: I will. This will be my, oh, geez. The first year I did it, I believe it was 20. What was it? Was it? 15 maybe 14 or 15 i'll have to go through my records so i've done it every year since since then and i am all in i've only missed one stage in one of the years and i got food poisoning i was basically in bed all day that day and um, <laughs> i did try to make up for it uh, afterwards but i am looking forward to the tour this year and uh and, and am excited for the challenge and to uh get a little bit of a and overload and and help push push things up to the new level for me it's always a uh kind of standard in the year of okay here's here's the big hit and uh we'll get ready then for for the rest of the year building off of the 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 fitness gained from the tour but keeping in mind that you have to back off after it to get that recovery
0: exactly and and coming up in in mid-february it's a perfect time to kind of give yourself a little launch pad for the racing and events ahead
1: exactly exactly that's that's the key you know you got to do the work but you also then have to take the rest after it so both sides of that coin have to uh, you got to hit both sides
0: well, thank you so much, Neil, and I'll see you on tour.
1: All right. And uh, looking forward to having everyone also make those donations and help raise that pot for the Davis Finney Foundation. That is the number one reason why we do the tour of sufferlandria. And uh, you know, I know Davis quite well, and, and uh, I'm bummed that we won't be able to ride in person this year, but we'll be uh, connecting on some virtual rides. So you will be able to see that.
0: Exactly. Yeah, important to remember. This isn't just for personal gain. It's there's a bigger cause here, supporting the the Davis Finney Foundation. So, Neil, thanks so much for your time. And like I said, we'll see we'll see you on tour in a couple weeks. Great, thanks, you. Joined now by Mr. Hollywood, Phil, the Thrill Guyman. How you doing, buddy?
2: Good, Mr. Hollywood. All right, I'll take it.
0: Well, you live down in just near Hollywood, right?
2: I live. Yeah, I moved. I moved a little bit. I'm still. I'm still in the Valley. Um, I'm in Woodland Hills now. I'm in a neighborhood that's like a little less city and closer to, to all the all the nice riding I like to do.
0: Yeah, well I'm always jealous every time I open up Strava and see where where all those people in Southern California have been riding, especially in January. I did a ride this morning. It was twenty two degrees when I left my house and I'm sure you're gonna be riding in shorts and short sleeve this afternoon.
2: I don't I don't wanna this is the most annoying complaint ever. It's actually too hot. There's a heat wave currently and it's like pushing ninety to where I I do I, I, I'm afraid it's going to be 130 degrees all summer. So at some point, I think oh, I might we're going to pay for this. But but right now, it's uh it's incredible here.
0: Yeah. Well, just before we we started recording, we were talking about life and retirement, and you've made you've made quite the little career for yourself. You know, you retired. Was it four years ago now?
2: I'm on year five of my of my ironic retirement. Ian.
0: <laughs> and yet, you're as fit as ever.
2: I took a couple, last week. I took a PR for myself. Well, I took a KOM for myself. That was uh, it. Was it was Fernwood? It was this like super steep climb in Malibu that I remember when I got it. It was 2017, and it was so like I'm very freshly retired and still had right, residual pro fitness, and it was like 22 minutes or something. And I was comp- I had a speed suit and everything, and I was completely ruined at the top. And I put like 30 seconds on that PR last week. So I'm pretty sure like my fitness has evolved in in some different ways. Like, I don't think I had the repeatability. I think if you put me in a bike race, I'd be in trouble. Um, but if you put me in an uphill time trial, I, I do think I'd be better than ever. Cause that's all I do anymore. It's been, it's interesting.
0: Well, that's kind of what I wanted to, to speak to you about. I mean, almost out of advice for myself is what, what's keeping you motivated now that you are retired, but you still obviously, you know, you're, you're still in very many ways, a professional athlete. Like what is the, what is the motivation to keep, pushing and training and dieting and doing all these things for a living when, you know, you made it very comically apparent that you weren't as happy when you were racing professional road bikes.
2: I think, I think that's kind of what it was is just like in, in racing, it's, it's just, I mean, you know, it's like such a hard life. Um, there's, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of, I don't know, It. I mean, I wrote two books on, on just what that whole scene was like, and it was really tough and kind of accidentally in my retirement, I found this way to, to sort of cut out the middleman of, of pro cycling and still be my best and engage with, with a community that I didn't know existed and, and share it. And then, and then sponsorships and, and making a living sort of backed into that. And I've, I've had way more fun in this, and I wouldn't be able to do this without the pro cycling part, but, uh, but And I'm able to do – like I've just kind of done this. People are used to doing Patreons and donating money to, to support YouTubers. So I kind of – because I had sponsors and that sort of came first, I was like, well, why don't I pick a charity? And I started working with No Kid Hungry. And last year, uh, my, my followers – and I chipped in some, but we raised $210,000. And it's just like, well, this is the best thing I ever did in really weird ways.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And the impact is
2: huge. I can't stop. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been, it's really neat. Like it's just, I'm just responding to, to kind of what responds to me.
0: What is your motivation to keep doing this? Obviously you've turned this into a job. You know, you have a a charity and a nonprofit that you're, you know, now incredibly proud to support and making a huge impact there. But personally, why is Phil Gaiman waking up? I assume you don't wake up too early, but why are you waking up every morning and going training in, in 90 degree weather? What, is there something that you? I mean, you still haven't potentially reached your physical, you know, limits, but is it the fact that you're just continually finding ways to improve?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's different for everybody, but the the part, the training part, like when I was racing, the training part, and and the the working on yourself, or like seeing your body as a project, like that wasn't the work. That wasn't the hard part. Like that was the cool part. The the part that was hard was you know, like I guess. Training in the rain sucks, like, you know, racing in the rain sucks, like traveling a ton, living on a bus, having a, you know, that a lot of the lifestyle was tough, but the, the pure I'm going out there and and like doing hill repeats and spending a day in the sun and, uh, and, and trying to be my best like that, that part, that part's fun. So now I've just kind of been liberated to, to find new ways
0: to do it. Do you still find days when you're not motivated or do you have enough goals I mean, is that kind of like the key is having objectives to work towards to keep you? I mean, because there's a big difference between going out and riding your bike and, you know, I know you're still training and you have a coach and you're still, you know, doing intervals. Right. Is it still a matter of, you still have days when you're like, Hey, you know what? I don't want to do this. I'm just going to push it back to tomorrow. And now you can have the ability to do that because, you know, your events aren't always set on a specific day.
2: Right. That's, that's a hundred percent. Another, another help is that the. Because my goals are kind of directed by myself and not like, you know, the, a square peg shoved in a round hole of, of whatever a race schedule is or whatever, like wherever a team thinks they need me, um, that, that, yeah, if I'm, I, I, want to go Everest, uh, you know, I'll wait until it's the best day. I'm not going to go when, uh, you know, this is, this is what we learned. Uh, the race doesn't start until I've had a chance to go to the bathroom and have my coffee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of Everesting, I just uh, checked out your YouTube channel. And by the time this comes out, your video of your most recent Everest attempt will be out. How did it go?
2: Not ideal. Not ideal. It's it's funny, like the amount of preparation that goes into it. This whole thing has been kind of built up because it was, I mean, it was last May. I set the record the first time and I, like, I trained I trained real hard for that, uh, but really no one knew exactly what it took to, to set this record. And, and over the next six months, I just watched the numbers fall and people sort of figured out like, oh, this is, this is a better kind of hill. This is a better, whatever, like all the equipment stuff was sort of figured out as, as the the level raised. Um, but I knew I was still kind of in the pool to do it based on a combination of, I'm, I'm still a good climber, uh, and I just have the will to put more work and effort into it than anybody else will. Uh, and I've been doing that, but then, uh, it got super, I found a hill that was appropriate. That was, that was a a hard process, just like scanning Strava segments for, for months. I, I did the training and then it got super hot in LA. It's LA summer. I wasn't going to do it then. If the weather finally got better in the fall and at that point I kind of realized I was going to be changing a few sponsors next year in ways that was going to give me a few seconds here and there, um, so I have. Uh, I'm still with I'm still with Wahoo, thankfully, but Shimano took over, and they're they like I can put XTR on that bike, and there's just lower friction in the drivetrain. Silka has a uh, this crazy chain treatment. I don't know if you ever used that. They use this like wax treatment. He sent me this this chain that's like it's a Shimano chain, but it's just lubed in a, like a more efficient way. So it's a couple more. So once I saw this coming, I'm like, well, I'm not gonna now. I'm gonna wait until January. Um, when I can, when I can, you know, set an even faster time. So I've just been like, kind of stressing myself out in, in preparation for this whole thing for anyway. So, uh, so I finally, I finally got to do it now. What was the original
0: question? <laughs> and is that, well, is that, I mean, is that what, it, what Everesting has, has come to? Cause I remember, you know, early, early 2020, I think, I mean, maybe you were one of the first kind of big names out there to go for it and, you know, you got it, but there was like very quickly. Yeah, You know, every, it seems like every couple of days someone had taken the record, but then, you know, like you said, people really refined their technique and found the best climbs and the equipment and, you know, people, there are some crazy bikes out there. Yep. But is that really what it takes to go? I mean, cause I mean, as far as what I've seen, I'm probably not following Everstein as close as you, but no one's no, broken no one the in record. The in, <laughs> yeah. No one in a couple months now has set, has broken the time. Is that correct?
2: That's right. Yeah. So basically the, the record, uh, currently is, is still held by Sean Gardner, a racer out of Virginia. And what, what we figured out is it's really all about having the steepest climb because you're just not wasting for momentum. You can do the total effort in less distance. So when I broke the record, it was like a 99 mile ride and Lachlan's or Keegan's was a little bit shorter, but similar. Lachlan's was a little bit shorter, but similar. Um, and then Contador basically found a much steeper hill where he had to turn around more often. I think he did a hundred laps or something, but his hill was so steep that he did the whole thing in like almost a hundred K. Like he literally cut 30 miles off of the the time. And then Ronan McLaughlin uh, did one in Ireland. He had this like perfect, super steep hill with a straight down. It was also, you can't be breaking on the downhill. Um, so those are, those are the considerations. Basically just turned into like, what's the steepest hill that you could possibly ride a bicycle up for a day. That's still safe to go down. And, and that's, that's what it's turned into. So Sean Gardner found, uh, a really good, obviously, like, you have to be a certain level of super fit to do this. It's not just about the hill, but in the pool of that, that's, that's been the math of, uh, of what hill can I find that's even possible. And I, I believe I found one in Malibu, uh, called Trancus. It's like 16% for, for half a mile. So I have to do 65 laps, which is still ugly. Um, I think Sean's was, was twice as long, but not quite as steep. Well and yes, I know you've
0: you've done a lot of digging and kind of poking with what is it, data analytics or some one of your one of your partners who really like kind of helped you figure out yeah. what's yeah, the integrated optimal. informatics was a yes. sponsor. Yeah, so is that you know, when when you think when you take this, I'm assuming you're gonna take this, Phil. I'm <laughs> benefit of the doubt. Okay. <laughs> do you think that I mean how far out of the reach do you think like, you know, every time someone breaks it, less and less people are able to actually you know, you, someone like yourself, you need the time, you need the equipment, you need the support, mm-hmm. you know, what do you think the limit of Everesting is?
2: One of the broader takeaways I've had from, from my retirement. So my whole thing, when I retired, I'm not racing anymore. I was going for KOMs. And, uh, and at, at that moment, Strava was this thing where like people were taking it super seriously and it was getting annoyingly competitive for a lot of folks. So I kind of went on there and I was like, I'm going to ironically take this super serious and treat. A KLM, like an uphill time trial, of the Tour de France. So I would have, I'd have a follow a speed suit, all that stuff. And, and kind of what I learned is there's people like, and I was taking KLMs at the time from dopers. That was part of how it started. Um, from, from, you know, big races from the Tour of California, uh, you know, guys racing up that. I think, did I take one from you? Did you have Baldi?
0: I think I did. Um, yeah. I did. Yeah. I, didn't I checked that you recently. Had the, but... You had the
2: second, you had the, you had the end of Baldi that the race came up that part. Um, but So I realized, like, here's the thing. When I was racing, like, you were just way better than me up a hill. But if I show up there in a speed suit, so it's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of, of will and effort and and getting that specific. So that was what I kind of took to, to Strava and KOMs. And and I think with Everesting, it's going to be the same. It's just the way – if I'm going to keep the record, it's because nobody wants to do what I'm going to put myself through. <laughs> I, I ran into Chris Froome's training in Malibu the other day, and and I was I was asking him, I was like, are "You ever? Would you ever try this?" He was like, "Absolutely not. It Looks horrible." So if I can will Chris Froome out of it, <laughs> so that it's the pool of people who could do it and the pool of people who are willing to do it is is just smaller and smaller. That's uh, that's how I see everything going.
0: What is your motivation level for for something like this? I mean, compared to something like you know Tour of California when you are racing or Tour de Suisse or something, is this? I mean, do you feel as motivated for this, maybe even more so than some of the bigger races you did when you were, when you were pro, just because you have essentially complete control over almost all factors?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, I don't know, motivation, motivation in the race was never a problem, like suffering. It was, it was never just like, ow, this hurts. I want to stop. I I don't think you get to a certain level if if that's even in, in your genes, What's, what's funny with everesting is because it's, it's so long the first couple hours, it's, it just takes a crazy amount of self-control to not go so hard. Um, and I didn't, I didn't even pace this, this last one perfectly. You know, I was going up, I was trying to do between 310 and 320 watts. And, and there's a couple laps I was kind of doing 330. Cause it's, it's 18%. Like try and go, try and go easy up that it's just, it's really tough to control yourself. And then, so that's, that's sort of that's tough and then the last two hours uh it is just miserable and it's just plugging away and like uh i didn't get to those like that was when i got to that feeling i was like all right this is this is when it's time to stop um because it's not going to go well today but but i remember that from the last one and and i'm prepared for that of just like okay it's just you're just gonna slog it and and be miserable and and that part that part sucks but uh but ultimately it's just like I'm here because I chose to be here. This is this has been a really fun way to exist. And uh and, and we just get to do more cool stuff. And once once everything is over, I'll you know, I'll find something else. Once once I have once I have that record, I can move on.
0: Yeah, do you have any other any other plans for later in twenty twenty one? I know that Everesting's obviously you picked you mean, first month of the year to go for it, so you don't have you have another eleven months to find something else, but what else is on your on your radar for the rest of the year? Right.
2: I mean, the part of what's, what's, what was good about Everesting was it's, it's local. So it was like, I was documenting the training about it. And so, you know, I'm not into races anymore. My job is content. And last year I couldn't travel. So, you know, finding the right hill and all that stuff. So I, I think as, as, covid allows i'll start doing some little road trips and mount lemon is on my radar lionel sanders has that he's a damn triathlete i can't i can't let that stand i'm waiting for i'm waiting for factors new aero bike for a lot of those because i know unless it's super steep i've got the VAM for the super steep stuff but but once the the astro bike comes it's just that's going to be so much faster for a mount lemon it's like a four percent kind of climb so there's there's a lot of those i'm like all right once once that shows up and i think i get mine in in march or something like that the more things open up, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's more hills than I'll be able to do on YouTube. (laughs) Yes, Um, there are lots of great stuff. Yeah.
0: Do you need those objectives to actually continue to push or, I mean, could you go months without having really knowing what you're going to do and still, still train harder? Are you getting more out of your kind of motivation level just based off of having something coming up that, you know, is, is really going to push your, your boundaries.
2: I've found that, that endurance riding is, is a lot easier mentally, like doing, doing intervals is something that, uh, I haven't done a lot of since I stopped racing. I still, I still do, but it's a lot easier to go for a KOM. That's just like, okay, here's a max 15 minute effort than to go for, this is just for me than to go like three by 15 at, at 400 watt, something like that. So I kind of have, have, I weave KOMs into my training and and it's just easy, yeah. It's, it's it's for me. It's like it's binary. Either I just empty myself, or or I rest, or I do endurance riding. I can nothing makes me bet makes me happier than just a five hour ride in the canyons here. That's there's no motivation either for that. I get home more motivated after those.
0: Well, and kind of tying it back to where we started, being being as fit as you maybe have ever been. Do you ever you know you said you rode with Froome the other day. Do you ever you know like last summer? Did you watch the tour and do you think like oh man, I want to go back? Like, do you miss any part of of professional racing or are you happy with doing what you're doing now?
2: I, I definitely don't miss professional racing as a whole. Uh, obviously, like I have, most of my friends were in that scene for a decade, uh, and I, I miss a lot of those folks. But I'm 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 well in touch with with most of them. That's been really nice. Uh, with at least the ones that count. If if there's one thing that I look back on with with my career, and it's it's again like I wrote a couple books on it, but like it bums me out how f- how fit I am five years after, and knowing that I didn't want to stop. And that I wanted, I wanted a shot. I wanted more of opportunities in that sport and I just never quite got what I feel like I deserve. And I think it like for the first couple of years of my retirement, I kind of had a fire in my belly to like prove that, like, Oh, I should still be there. I think at this point I've thoroughly proved it just between sponsor value. And, and, you know, I, I did a 4:30 pursuit, uh, and the Everesting record seven months apart with a, with a, Broken shoulder in between, <laughs> so like obviously I'm enough of an athlete that I that I deserve to try a Grand Tour at some point, and I'll never have that, and that's it's a bummer. But and, and I remember doing the doing the Everesting record and, and thinking like, man, look at I did 310 watts for seven hours. Uh, no, it was eight hours. Sorry. And I was like, and I looked at, it, I was like, if I can do that, like I wish I wish there was something better I could do with this. You know, like I wish I could use this for something. And I was like, well. I guess I am. It's just for YouTube and entertainment and myself and whoever's following it. And that's just what it's got to be. That That's the other system is kind of closed. So I guess my my take is just, I've seen it more as like a bummer of a system that, that couldn't find a place for me when, when obviously it, it kind of should have been there. Uh, but I've I've made the best of it and, uh, and it's been fun.
0: Well, if an opportunity came up, let's say, I mean, one of your partners said, hey, we have a spot on a team and you're guaranteed a grand tour. Would you go and take that opportunity? if you said like, here's one more chance, Phil, like, you know, we've got your sponsorship covered. We're going to put you on this team and, you know, you can do a couple races leading up to the Giro of Welta tour, but you're in, would you yeah, go back Yeah, hypothetically,
2: and do I would, yeah, that'd be fun. I, I would do that. I would do it. It's like the reality that any team that would, that would have me, a like i i have enough sponsorship now that i'm not as cheap as i was <laughs> uh and my life is so much more fun like you know i i used to you know 70 race days they like they they work you they make you they make you earn it um like i'm at home now with my fiance and my puppy and like i work my butt off but it's on my terms so yeah it'd be it'd be hard for anyone to do that but it it would be fun you know if israel or something you know said hey factor wants you to do a tour of california um if tour of california comes back i that'd be fun to jump into that or like or yeah, do one of those races that like was always on my radar and I never never got a shot at um throwing me into a Welta and then and then just like watch me beat super miserable and want to go home to my KONs.
0: Well it's 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 funny you say that because you know I've kind of we've had very similar careers in the sense that, you know, we both stopped probably younger than we would have anticipated when we first got into the sport. It's crazy. But it I mean it's it's become very apparent to myself over the last twelve months that like so many people in in all walks of life, but you know, predict you know, really in endurance sports and cycling, it's like there's never an end. You know, you think like you want to, I mean, you're saying you want to do a Grand Tour. You wanted that opportunity, but I wonder how much of going back and doing a Grand Tour would be like. Oh well, I want to do it again because I think I can improve X, Y, and Z. I mean, you look at someone like Froome. He's won five or four Tour de Frances, but that's not enough. It's like there has to be. You know, there's always something more that's going to drive you, and especially motivated athletes. There's always something more. You always want to get better and faster and improve something because you're constantly learning. And yeah. I just wonder if you know if you went back and did that, it would just spiral into a situation where you're like, well, I just want to do. Oh, I just did the Giro. Now I want to do the Vuelta, or I want to do the Tour. Like it's <laughs> just it just keeps going. Do
2: yeah. No, I I don't. I, I I wouldn't rule that out as as how I would feel. And I think ultimately there's not enough time or fitness in life to like do all the stuff we want to do. So yeah, it's just, it's just a matter of, of being able to choose that. And, and some people have that choice and, and others kind of don't quite, but some in
1: between would have been, would have been cool.
0: But I mean, is there something even in within, you know, taking the Everstein record, especially where the, where the time is set now realizing that like you're one of the best pure climbers in the world? Is there something, I mean, you've got to feel good if you, if you take the record and realize that, you've got the record and no one else in yeah. history has gone faster than, than you, Up, uh, well, a virtual Mount Everest.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, that would be, the thing is like every, yes, every, every KOM I have feels pretty cool. Every like, yeah, that, that record would be, would be for sure a notch above, you know, a Strava KOM, but kind of a similar thing of, of just like, I know, I know my advantages. I know what I put into it. And I know that other people who are, I know that if Chris Froome decided to put half the effort in that I have to Everesting, he would smash my time. And and I also know that like to your point, no one really at least it's very rare to get like the storybook career ending that that you really want. The cancel are like, "Okay, I'm just going to go grab a gold medal at the at the Olympics as my retirement party." That's very few people can pull that off because there's just there's just too many things to control. So so yeah, at some point it's just like, well, this isn't working anymore. I'm I'm going to be done. You find out you retired. You don't, you don't get to decide <laughs> yeah. the, the majority of it. Right.
0: Yeah. Your contract's like, gone. Sorry, buddy.
2: Yeah. It's just, you get those. It, it's funny. It's it's a, it's a talk that I've had with, with a few of my former teammates. I'm still in touch with them. Like, I'm like, make sure that like you're, you can, you can zoom out and figure out when you're going to have to retire and, and plan it, you know, like, like, Don't, don't let the teams tell you when you retire because you couldn't get a job that year. Like realize like, okay, the writing's on the wall for this. And like, how do I want my book to end and, and figure that out? I've, I've, I've pitched a couple of buddies on like, all right, here's how you should go.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: What do you feel like what you should do
0: potentially by having, you know, stopped racing professionally earlier that you've actually like extended your career as an athlete. And I spoke to Neil Henderson a couple of weeks ago about like aging in sport. And he said, I mean, oftentimes it's the mental side that burns out, not the physical. And because you're able to, you know, kind of train where you want, you can live in a beautiful area that has great weather, you know, push hard when you feel good, you know, back it off if you're just not, not feeling it. Do you feel like you could potentially like do this into your mid to late forties and still be at a level where you are taking KOMs or records that, you know, other young riders are, you know, maybe struggling to do because they are racing on the road.
2: Yeah, I think, I think especially as it gets specific like that, I mean, for YouTube, for my videos, whatever, like I do group rides, I train hard, at least, you know, I, I was doing group rides. But ultimately, like I was just riding similar volume, but just way, way less hard than I did as a pro. So you know, for for YouTube, I'm if I'm making 15 videos a year that are KOM based, that's 15, effectively 15 race days of half an hour average. Whereas before, you know, we did a lot more than that. <laughs> so if, it, if, it, if you just look at like, I have this many days where I can completely max myself out, um, I've, I've for sure extended that and just like being able to really train specifically for each one and, and do like a slow build and, you know, I never have to train when I'm sick. I never have to train when I'm not motivated. Yeah. I think that adds up uh, mentally too. We're, we're just the last, the last problem I have is, is motivation to get on the bike.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you actually want to go out and ride because yeah, you're not you're not in an event that there's nothing worse than being on the start line of a race in Belgium and it's raining and you don't even want to be there. I think
2: about I think about those moments a lot of when, when I think about like missing pro cycling just that you're, you're sitting on the bus and you're looking out the window and it's dumping rain and it's you know it's a 200k stage it's just like my day is going to be miserable and there's no <laughs> yeah. there's no way around that um, and it's and it's weird how many times we did that.
0: Yeah. When it's like, I mean, you know what it's like on the bus and it's like being, you know, going to prom or something. Everyone's on the bus. Like, what are you going to wear? Are you going to wear this? You're going to wear that? Half the guys are motivated. Half the guys think the race should be canceled. And it's, yeah. you know, it just takes one person to want to do it. And the whole Peloton's got to go.
2: Yeah. No. And then there's the part where like the, this is to cathartic, but just like looking at the, the crosswinds and like, okay, here's, here's an echelon. Here's what it's going to be. Here's like, I'm going to get dropped here. That's fine. I'm going to catch back on there with these guys. Like, the, just the way you look at the map <laughs> for those days, just like, uh,
0: um, do you still watch at, much racing?
2: Honestly, zero.
0: Really? Even um, stuff un, like the unless, Tour de France and whatnot. Unless like,
2: unless I see on social media that like a friend of mine is going to win, uh, or is, or is in position to win or like something special is going to happen that like, I'm, I'm going to feel I want to be a part of. I don't like to look at it. I, it's it's one of those things like I can't believe I ever did that. I can't believe how bad I wanted to do that. I can't believe my friends are in there doing that. Yeah, it's it's strange. You're not there yet. You still watch it?
0: I I check like cycling websites pretty much every day still. Yeah, it's still like my part of my morning routine. I, I mean, I don't watch. I mean, being on the East Coast is like the worst place to be, maybe outside of Australia for watching European racing because the races like always finish around like eleven or twelve o'clock, which is right when I'm hopefully out riding my bike or or doing something else. But I still stay, you know, I still stay up to date with what's happening. You know, I, it's amazing how quickly things change. Though, You know, I was out of the sport for a year and I went back to Nice last November and was like hanging out with, with Larry and Will Barda and some other kids. And they're just talking about how much things have changed even within 12 months. And, you know, I guess you're five years out of it now. It's like almost, it's the same sport, but so much has changed with, you know, training and you know, races and team strategy and all that, that, you know, it appears the same, but just how the writers are going about it, it, it evolves so quickly. I believe that. I believe that. I think
2: honestly, like the other, I just I probably admit it. Like the other thing that, that keeps me from watching is just like, there's going to be, there's going to be something that makes me mad in regards to doping. <laughs> there's going to be something that I see as there's like, you know, the, who they've got commentating, who, you know, what, a couple of riders who are still lingering who like, I I, who I don't think ever should be. And it's just like, I, I have trouble with, with the hypocrisy of all of it. And the, you know, who's quiet and who's not that I just, I, I, that I just find it super distasteful once in a while. There's, there's a moment in every race where I'm like, Oh God, that guy. And I, I gotta cl- click away. Um, I learned that pretty quick.
0: Well, that's one thing that I think was interesting. I mean, people of your generation, you know, I raced a lot with Danny paid at, at team sky and just that, I mean, you're what? You're 30, mid-30s? 34, yeah. 34. I mean, so even just that four-year window between your time and just like starting off in racing and mine. And I know, of course, people had still cheated throughout my career, but I feel like a lot of the people that I was going up against or trying to find contracts against didn't really overlap or take opportunities away from... Myself and I just yeah. I remember being at dinner table with with Danny Pate quite often at, at Team Sky, and he would just you know speak so poorly of some athletes. So you know, I think without you know kind of this era of of doping, he would have had something like seven national championships as a pro, and he had none right. because he was always beat by people who had, you know, later on you know came out that they were doping, and he had this you know he was so cynical about it, and I couldn't understand it really until was it two years ago in this operation Adalos in in Austria. And all of a sudden, those George Predler and Stephen Denefield, you know, kids that were my age and I was friends with—and you know, at a very similar opportunity and kind of you know pay grade and you know fighting for contracts against each other—and they went, you know, they both confessed to doping. And that was like the first time that I was like, oh wow, these are like my peers. You know, there's older writers, and of course, people had been. And now it's personal. Those are guys
2: who, yeah, yeah. Um, No, there's there's different categories of like like ways that 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 doping has has hurt an athlete or a sport and. So, so you, so Pate, I would say is like the most direct kind of, kind of victim. And, and I would say like, he's more of a, of a victim of it than I was. Cause he like literally got second and third to guys who were cheating for, for over and over. And he was doing it right. And, and at some point, like, Like he has, he has the respect from the people who, who matter, I think, but he just like, just imagine being him and watch people get filthy rich (laughs) and knowing how they're doing it and choosing to, to do it the right way. And, and to this day, like he just, that's for the rest of his life, he gets to carry that around. Like for me, where, where it hurt me was just like, I didn't really get the opportunities because the sport was such a mess. So like, I, you know, I started a little bit late and, and every year, you know, Lance, I forget what year Lance confessed was it 2010, something like that. But basically, like every uh, year that 2012. I 12, okay, like every year I came up a notch, the sport went down two notches. So, like when I started racing, like I'm I'm up and coming, nineteen year old. The guy who wins Redlands is making six figures and goes to Europe, but I won Redlands. I was making fifteen thousand dollars and and sleeping in my car a lot, and that was just like how fast it it all slid. You you got a fair run at it. You also like you, you started a little bit earlier, got, had a, a notch more talent than me, but you got a fair run on it. You were on the, you were on the national team. You got the, you got the development team. So for you, you were only really a victim at like the super high end of just like, you know, you don't really know where your top was because there were a few guys ahead of you here and there who, who might not have been on the up and up. Uh, so it's, it's, it's different. So yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel it as directly. I, I just feel like my, my life sucked because of doping. Pate had, uh, You know, had results stolen from because of doping. So it's yeah, it's it's all it's all interesting, and I hope I don't know. I hope I. It seems like it's gotten a lot better since I've paid attention to it, but still the sport quite quite hasn't caught up to it. But it just takes a little bit to to really like get me grumpy about
0: it. Yeah. Well, we can we can we can change gears here, and I've I have one more question for you, and it just kind of popped into my head because you were very like you said you won. I was it was it twenty fourteen or something. You won like every race domestically in the U.S. You won Redlands. You won you know all these races that were. Key events yeah, I, in the U.S.
2: I cleaned up in, in like twelve and thirteen.
0: Yeah, and and I guess my question is where we stand now. Is what do you think? And if you even want to give some perspective on this, what do you think the future of American racing is? Because a lot of those races have gone away, and you know we both raced at at Bissell at the time, and I you know I was on a hundred dollars a month, and I was stoked because I got free Kellogg's granola. But I remember, you know, there were athletes, you know, you think about Jacques Mainz, there were athletes who were racing just here in the U.S. domestically, who were making enough money to have a, you know, to have a reasonable lifestyle. And, you know, in the last two years, we've seen that kind of disappear, especially domestically where riders now, if they're lucky enough to get on, you know, Axel Merckx's team, they can go over to Europe and then they can hopefully get in a world tour team. But for someone who's Phil Gaiman right now, who's 18 years old, they're not on the national team, they're not on action there's really not much racing in the U S to kind of get noticed to even make that step. I mean, what, what do you see happening here in the U S with, with American racing?
2: Yeah. It's, it's a real, it's a real bummer to watch. And it was, it was, it was fizzling before COVID. I just, excuse me, I'm looking at the start list for, for a few races the last couple of years and there weren't even any, like maybe there were two UCI teams. Um, and even like American teams like, like rally Optum that I, I rode for Optum. Now they're called rally. they, they don't even do the domestic races anymore like i don't think they showed up at the last 3 or 4 redlands like maybe the women's team does honestly there there really never was a path from from domestic racing to europe that was that was clear there was like a few of us who did it by just like really banging the door in and and it just you just do something undeniable they have to give you a chance but it was only a few of us who who even pulled that off so now there's not even i, I just don't see even a pretend path to that so yeah it's just if you don't have an early start you better get to Europe or, or the thing is, there's just like a new category of, of professional cycling that, that I'm doing of just like create content. You have sponsor value. You're not like doing, I, I, to me, like I don't think the UCI gets to decide who's a pro cyclist. I think I'm still a pro cyclist. I think people who are creating values for sponsors and being professional and being you know, good ambassadors of cycling are pro cyclists, and I and I think like that might just be the way. I, I you know a lot of people are, are creating content and having adventures and doing great stuff on bikes. Uh, is is Pete Stet any less of a pro cyclist than he was before? I don't I don't really think so.
0: Yeah, that that's true, and it really I mean, especially here in in North America, it is almost this new era of professional cyclists. You know, because they're. People are now realizing they can go out on their own, set their own schedule, set their own objectives, whether it's, you know, going for an FKT, Everestine, you know, gravel events, whatever it may be. And they can essentially, I mean, yeah, I mean, a professional, someone who gets paid for what they do. So, yeah, they are professional athletes. Yeah.
2: So maybe we're just inventing a new kind of North American pro cycling that that doesn't really, that doesn't end in the Tour de France. You know, maybe that isn't the end all be all for, for this track, If you know, if you started too late.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. Phil? I know it's a warm day down there in sunny Southern California. So I'll I'll let you get going, let you get out on your bike. Thanks so much for the time. And uh, I look forward to following along to see how the Everest attempt gets on. Of course, man. Great chat. Thanks, Phil. Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed this week's show and my conversation with Phil Guyman. No, Phil, unfortunately, did not take the Everesting record when he gave it a go a few weeks ago. However, he does have another attempt planned in the very near future. To hear more from Phil, you can check him out over at his YouTube channel. And for those of you who are interested in checking out the tour of Sufferlandria, head over to thesufferfest.com. All proceeds benefit the Davis Finney Foundation. The dates of that event... February 14th to the 20th. I will be there. I hope to see you there. And until next week, folks, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll catch you all back right here next week on Breakfast with Boz, being served by Wahoo.